Thank you for this morning. As that last song so gloriously stated, you left the throne above your condescension into the form of a man, God-man, but man, uh, leaves us speechless, helps, Lord, it's just almost impossible to fathom. The world mocks that God would take on human flesh, uh, but we marvel. Lord, I just pray, as we always pray, we just pray that your spirit would be with us here this morning, that you would guide us into a deeper and deeper understanding. Maybe there's somebody here that really doesn't know Jesus yet or watching that just kind of has just a a cultural understanding of Jesus and that will be provoked to believe something radically different about who you are. Father, I pray that your word would unveil who you really are and then transform us because of that belief. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you ready to roll? Well, this book we have been going through in tremendous detail, as you know. Uh, I have some of these, the men in this room and uh, maybe online or uh, can say, well, he's been going through Proverbs. We started in Proverbs chapter 10 on Thursday morning a number of years back, almost four years ago, and we are now to Proverbs 28. So it's taken almost four years, every single Thursday, with rare exception, to go through 18 chapters of Proverbs. And you say, well, are you just talking real slow or what? You know, No, but it's amazing the integration that we get and the detail. And the question, of course, is why would we go into such great detail, even in this exploration of this one of the three gospels, synoptic gospels, the gospel of Luke, why would we go through such staggering detail? And can't we pick it up a little bit? Well, that's fine if you're trying to read your Bible through in a year, and I suggest you do that. I think it's a great way to kind of get a broad sense of the narrative. But it's also important that we do this, and why? Because what we are saying and what the Bible is saying about Jesus, who is the key figure from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22, is that he has an exclusive on truth. That's what Jesus said about himself and because we, as followers of Jesus, and, and again, we're trying to provoke, you know, Paul said, uh, I beg you to consider Christ. I, I beg you to, to listen to the gospel. We believe that what he said was true about himself, and as a result, because he was the, the world was created through him, as Paul told the Colossians, we cling to every detail. I can't say it more clearly. We are clinging to the words and the activities of Jesus. We really have only three to three and a half years of his life recorded in Scripture, and it's not even an arguable point. He is the most uh, powerful name that's ever existed in all of humanity for the forces of good. Some may argue that, but I think it's clear more people talk about him, more people know about him. The search for the name Jesus is highest, as I alluded to in a sermon um, maybe over a year, several years ago. That search for the name Jesus surpasses every other search in, in Google's history. Why? Three to three and a half years in this in seemingly inconsequential place in the Middle East, this little you know, Mediterranean kind of vibe and a little tiny piece of land. 
Why would we be clinging to such detail? You know, most of you know, but not all of you. I was, uh, uh, still am, PGA golf professional, lifetime retired. I gave a few lessons in my life and also worked on my own swing. And I continue to do that to my, to my family's great uh, sorrow. And uh, it's a painful process to try to get better at golf, especially as you're, you know, becoming a grandfather and getting older and you think you can still hit the same clubs you hit when you were 25. You can't. You just need to take more club. Uh, but I have gone into great detail, and I still do this. I spend time, I go to YouTube, I watch, I know what all the latest, who the latest coaches are, what the latest kind of uh, cutting edge thing is, what Jordan Spieth's working on to help his resurgence, what Dustin Johnson does with a slightly closed club face, and he's playing so consistently, and now Brooks Kopka. I mean, all these different guys know what they're doing, even the women. I watch their swings, I watch the South Korean women. I go into extraordinary detail. I mean, you say, well, why are you telling us this? Because look, I'm, it's important to me that if you're on these pressure plates, what happens to the pressure in your backswing and what happens in transition and how early it is and what does the shaft do? Does it lay down? And I mean, blah, 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 blah. But I will tell you this. <clears throat> if somebody came out, if one of the teachers, and I don't care who they were teaching, I don't care how many majors they'd won, if they came in and said, look, I have determined this is the mystery of the golf swing and it's applicable to everybody, I would turn it off immediately because there are so many different things that go into the golf swing. There are body types and just basic fast twitch, slow twitch. I mean, you get tall, skinny guys. You got, you know, bigger, stockier guys. You got... You know, women, same, same thing on that side. They're just, there is no exclusive thing because as soon as you would say, this is how the swing must work, this is the plane on which you must swing, as soon as that happens, you can find an exception. Well, you got to be on plane at the top of your swing, and then Freddie Couples is, you know, you got to keep your right elbow down. Freddie Couples is up here. Can't overswing, can't go past parallel. John Daly wins two majors and almost hitting his left kneecap with his club head. He swings it back so far. And he swings hard. You have to, you know, do this with your body. And then you've got some overweight person that's winning tournaments. And well, you got to be skinny. You got to be. Uh, I would say it's crazy for anybody to say I have the exclusive truth on the golf swing. And yet, Jesus comes along, and he claims exclusivity in every detail of what he says. Not pick and choose. What would you like? What do you need for your life right now? And maybe I'll give you an insight into that reality. Jesus claimed exclusivity. And because of that, you have to do one of two things. You cannot just sit on the fence with Jesus. A lot of people think they can. It's impossible. You must claim him for who he was and who he said he was, or you must dismiss him. He is a deranged, crazy person claiming the exclusive truth, not just about the golf swing, but about all of creation and the purpose for all of humanity. That's why we go into incredible detail into these gospels. So we're going to start, as Randy alluded to, in Luke chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to just look at three verses this morning, and out of that, we're going to derive some new, maybe new thinking, at least in some of your minds. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. I find these fascinating. Now, just to set you up, this is now going to be Jesus' second tour of the northern parts of, of Israel. Uh, through the Galilee region, and if probably take a third tour starting in chapter 9, if you kind of put all that together, 
His first tour, he was, a, a, he was gathering some disciples, certainly the 12 he called out. Now those 12 are with him, and they are now going to go in, and they are, he's going to begin to do some amazing teaching. He's already been proving who he was. He's already been showing folks who exactly his, the claim was, that he was, in fact, God in human flesh, that he was Israel's long-awaited Messiah. First three verses, soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another. Again, his second tour, if you will, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene. We know her as Mary Magdalene. Why? She was from Magdala. And what's been amazing, some of you have been with me to Israel, even, and it was my first time. This is actually a fairly new discovery in Israel. On kind of the, the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, there's a place called Magdala, and they have actually unearthed uh, an amazing, amazing synagogue that they believe and it, everything points to would have been during the time of Jesus, first century synagogue. Now, there are quite a few synagogues, the one uh, near Peter's home, which was uh, quite a few, maybe two or three hundred years later, even though it's near where Peter's home is, down near Capernaum. But this in Magdala said, Jesus probably taught in the synagogue. It's amazing. Now, obviously, it's not standing, but you've got the ground floor and you can see the tile work and everything. It's just pretty remarkable to be there and go, Jesus could have been standing right over there talking to maybe 20 or 30 people. Just amazing. Well, that was Mary. She was from Magdala. She had been healed of some evil spirits. Let me just say, sidebar note here, a lot of times she's seen as an adulterous woman or maybe even a prostitute. There's no indication that Mary was that, but she was oppressed. Part of what Jesus had claimed to be setting prisoners free in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61, some 700 years prior as Isaiah had seen it. From whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their own private means. Now it's important to see too that this was Herod, not Herod the Great. Herod would have Herod the Great would have been dead. It it split into four different tetrarchs or four different regions. Uh, that were over these tetrarchs were over these four regions. This would have been Herod Antipas, who had most of uh, the Galilee had the Galilee region under his control, and also Perea, which would have been just to the east of the Jordan, all the way down about two thirds or half away or so down to the Dead Sea, where John the Baptist eventually would be beheaded, which was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, on the what would today we would say the nation of uh, Jordan. Interesting here. Interesting stuff we're getting right here, and I just couldn't go on. We'll, we'll look in weeks to come at the sower went out to sow. That's the teaching that's going to emerge next. But these first three verses grabbed me. Number one, the kingdom of God. He was proclaiming and teaching about the kingdom of God. Maybe you'll ask, what is the kingdom of God? We talk about it quite often because it's very important that Jesus was always proclaiming and teaching. John the Baptist was proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom of God? First of all, the kingdom of God is not a political entity. The kingdom of God is not. It is a spiritual realm in which people on their own volition choose to live under the sovereign rule and reign 
of God through his son, Jesus. Jesus was saying, I am going to make access available so that you can hear the voice of the creator of the universe, my father, and you can live under his his command and his rule through obeying my commands, and I'm going to achieve that by eventually dying and sending the Holy Spirit so you can be followers of me. This is what was being proclaimed. This is, in fact, what the kingdom of God is. It was inaugurated by Jesus. Jesus, again, was the new Moses. He was the new Adam. He was, uh, but he was also this Daniel figure, this son of God. He claimed to be the son of man who, in Daniel chapter 7, was up in all power and authority and dominion. The ancient of days, the father, God the father, would give to the son, the son of man, the son of God. We've looked at that very often. But he was also what? Well, he was, he was the lamb. He was the cornerstone. He was the rock in the wilderness. He was a lot of things, but he was the lamb. And again, why? Because as that third song said, he came down from the throne in heaven so that he could what? Spill his blood to make possible our reconnection with the creator of our souls from whom we had fallen and the very nature fights against his, the spirit of God the Father. And Jesus is proclaiming that I'm going to bridge that gap. You're going to be cool with God again. You don't have to freak out because you feel the shame that you feel and the separateness you feel and all those things. I'm going to make that right yet once again. And that was the good news. God was willing. Jesus was saying, I am proclaiming and inaugurating that my Father is willing to have relationship with you yet once again. And this, my friends, is in fact what the kingdom of God means. You can be in here and not be part of the kingdom of God. You can be in here and be part of the kingdom of God. The question is, are you following? See, following is what Jesus always said. Will you follow me? Now, can we literally follow Jesus? Of course not. Can't follow Jesus in a literal way. Way, how do I follow him? Because I I listen, I go into great detail, I take great pains with what he said about reality, and then through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, I walk into that and I make those decisions every single moment of my life. And in following him, what is it? That's what makes the kingdom work because human flourishing takes over when we follow Jesus. We don't do it just to get into heaven, we have to get away from the idea that it's just about going one place or the other and realize that the gospel of the kingdom in its most powerful way was the ability to reconnect with God through what Jesus inaugurated in his blood to allow us to have this relationship that should lead to the flourishing of life. Why doesn't life flourish, even for those who are following Jesus as actively as they can? Well, we know we live in a fallen world. There's persecution. Some of it is brought from outside upon us, and some of it still is that all-residing sin nature that exists in us. I wish it didn't, and one day it won't. But now it still has a hold, and it's a pull away, and yet we're followers of Jesus. Jan David Hedinga, and this is important, talks a lot about the kingdom of God. 
I love his book simply called Follow Me. I've tried to order extra copies. It's very difficult to get these, but it had such a profound impact. I will, it is still a top five for me of all time. Was that because it was early in my walk? Probably so, but it it laid a foundation in my mind about what the gospel of the kingdom was, in addition to George Eldon Ladd and others, the already but the not yet, the rule and reign of God. But boy, does, does Hedinger really give me deep insight? And I wanted to give you a quote of what he talked about when he talked about the kingdom of heaven. Listen to what he says. Somehow we have mistakenly assumed that saving grace, that's God's just willingness to save us on behalf of a gift, as we looked at last week, must be isolated from the call to follow. Somehow we have this mistaken idea, he's saying, that we can go to heaven and not go to hell and not have anything to do with followership. He said, that's a big mistake. He said, the call to enter the kingdom of God. So he's saying, look, when we're isolated from the call to follow, that is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is following. What is the kingdom of God? What was Jesus teaching and proclaiming here on his second tour? How to follow him. And of course, that involved teaching. It it, it involved all of that. He said, which is where followers of God live. We have become preoccupied with offering the gift, the pardon, and the loving acceptance of God's great salvation. All true. But we have forgotten that according to Jesus, the arrival of the kingdom, the reign of God, is the gospel. The good news is that God will rule and reign with you in an intimate way, which will lead to the very purpose for which you are created. It will lead to the flourishing of life. Of course, you get, in, you get into the kingdom as a free gift based only on what Jesus did and not your ability. But the really the crux of the good news is what? That I'm in and now God's going to begin to teach me how to be a human again, how to be a new kind of human. Boy, do we need new humanity in this day and age. It's hard not to be cynical. It's hard to watch our culture saturated in things that are so anti-Christ. It drives me crazy and it hurts my heart. The only thing I know, teach and proclaim the gospel. If I thought there was a better way, I would enter into it. That's the only thing I know that can change lives and maybe even change the direction of the United States of America. Humankind has long projected the behavior of human leaders on God. Don't, get, don't miss this. Experience and common sense tell us that those in a position to take selfish, selfish advantage here on earth will do so. That's why no political, you know, right now we have this rise of kind of this new socialism and really based, as I alluded to last week, and it's kind of this Marxist, Leninist ideas. I mean, it's a challenge, and I think that was actually in another Bible study I taught, but still, this whole idea of this new thing, and if we can just get new leaders in and the state can gain more control, whoever has power, we have learned this, whoever has power is going to take advantage of it. Republican, Democrat, not. I mean, there are some godly men and women out there, but most people, when they get the power, they are corrupted by that power. That's our experience. We see it even inside the church. That's why it's so important that we get a very flat leadership structure. We work so hard, even here at Church at the Red Door, 
I am one of many pieces. I'm not a sole singular leader who's out there, you know, giving commands and everybody forget it. I don't even trust myself. I can barely get out of bed in the morning. How am I going to, you know, I need to be part of an interdependent community. So our experience has been that way with human beings. Why would heaven operate any differently, some people think? God owns the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches of cosmic government. Without a system of checks and balances or an appeal process, God is accountable to no one but himself. Judging from our past experience, such a superbly positioned ego could not help but be supremely selfish. It's a good thought, isn't it? A lot of people think of God as being an egoist, having a huge ego and and manipulating world events. If there is a God, I I don't want to be anywhere near him. And that's what Hedinga goes on to say. If God were like human leaders, our defensiveness would be appropriate. Such a self-centered, supreme being would inevitably make heaven a plush, gold-lined, gold-lined prison. If we were to follow such thinking to its logical conclusion, then hell would be the one place where some respite could be had. Eternal separation from this kind of dreadful, self-obsessed deity would be a relief. Hmm. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know what the Father's like? Was Jesus a delusional person? claiming exclusive truth on all of reality and was his father just a just a deity driven by an incredulous view of, of his own creation well how did jesus well it's all very much about jesus condescension Philippians 2, verse 1 through 11, Therefore, if there be any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You know what the gospel is? This is part of it. This is what following Jesus looks like. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. How well are you doing that? Do you consider, do you look down upon others or do you consider others more important than yourself? This is the gospel in its fullness and its teaching. This is a way to be a new kind of human. This is what is going to make heaven not a gold-lined, plush prison, but a beautiful free expression of humanity under God's rule and reign. That's going to be heaven. It's going to be extraordinary. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. This other's first attitude is part of the message of the teaching and proclaiming that Jesus was doing throughout all the Galilee region. And then lastly, I have this attitude which was also in Jesus. And I'm going to get to this in a minute. This is the second part. This is the third verse here that may, don't let it escape you. Have this attitude that was in Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a bloody, brutal beating that he took that ended on the cross and his death. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow. I'm just telling you, and I've said it again, and I'll say it again and again. I beg you, consider Jesus, because there will come a day, either before your death or after your death, that every knee will bow before this Jesus. Is that exclusive? Yes, but he proved it. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. But most importantly, he even had the authority to raise his own, his own body and bring, bring it back to life. That every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of the glory of God. This is difficult to try to even comprehend, this condescension of Jesus coming down, taking on the form of man. Theologians calls the hypostatic union, you know. It's very complicated. It's very difficult. Let, let me try to make it as simple as I can because that's the only way I can think. It's just God in three persons. What is personhood? It doesn't have to be a body. We always think of a person always having to have a body, and that's normally the case. A person is has a heart, a will, an emotion, and a and and that's what makes personhood, not your body. God the Father is spirit, the Bible says. Jesus was always preexistent with the Father. But there are three individual persons in the Godhead. It's very important. It's not just a casual thing that can be overlooked. Because then you may mistake Jesus for just an interesting teacher or somebody who had really good access to the Father. He was part of the Godhead, the same substance but different form. He always existed John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then many of you know, I quote it all the time because it's so foundational to your ability to worship. You won't worship, some, you should not worship some, someone that's not God. It's okay to worship Jesus. He accepted worship during his life. If he had just been a lunatic teacher, even a lunatic teacher was is loath to take on personal worship at the level at which Jesus took it on. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. The Word, the membra. Uh, it's amazing. D Jesus, the Word, the Word, the Word. In fact, you go back into some of the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, and it was the Word that was in the garden. It was the Word that created. They, that, it's just an amazing, go back into the Hebrew, it's amazing. It was God, but it was through his word, and the word took on, the word had a personality, and it wasn't just God the Father, it was God through the Son creating things and speaking things into existence through the word, and now John says the word was Jesus. The word was Jesus. John 8, verse 58, surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. They were Many of the religious leaders were accusing Jesus of being exclusive, the prophets died to whom, whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus had an opportunity. Well, I'm just a very interesting prophet or I'm a great teacher or something, but he didn't. He said, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me. So he's claiming to be the son of God of whom you say he is our God. And 
but you have not come to know him. But I know him, and if I say that I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you are. Ouch. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, that many of the religious Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham, who lived 2,000 years before Jesus, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. God's very name. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Micah 5.2, writing hundreds of years in advance of Jesus. But as if for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will go one for one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Here's going to be a person that's going to be ruling, that's going to be doing amazing things, a man, a son of man, somebody, but his days, he's been from all of eternity. Can I just ask you, who do you think that could possibly be if not Jesus? Otherwise, we can just take the Old Testament, as far as I'm concerned, and say, well, there's some interesting rules, and maybe it'll help society a little bit, and there's some interesting kind of, Judeo, kind of Judaic rules that might help us flourish. And, but other than that, I wouldn't be interested at all. Zero. Who's, who's going to the nations? Why do, we, why do we look across the pond there and see all those people so unified in such a beautiful place in the kingdom of having singing and glorifying Jesus and talking about the blessings of the blessings of Abraham that have come through the spirit black and white and young and old and and all across the spectrum why Jesus Jesus it's all about him the eternal one the ones who's the well the one who's been from all of eternity and Micah had seen that Colossians 2 9 for in him all the fullness of of deity dwells in bodily form. I don't know how it can be more clear. But he was constrained, and this is my point in this last verse in Luke 8, verse 3. He was constrained. How so? He constrained himself to be a man. He was all the deity in bodily form, the fullness of deity in bodily form. And yet, John 4, 6, Jacob's well was there. This is the woman at the well encounter. So Jesus being weary, I think the NIV says tired from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus got tired. I mean, we go back into these prophets, and if you go back into 2 Samuel 7, for instance, with the Davidic covenant, and you see all this, this, this someone's going to come from the line of David, and then you read the Psalms like Psalm 45, verse 2 and 4 and 6 and 8, and all these... And then all of a sudden, God's supposed to receive worship, and yet now you've got all this worship being directed towards this one in the line of David. Well, kings were never to be worshipped, and yet this, this king, this, this one who would live forever and rule the nations was going to be worshipped. See it in Psalm 100 and Psalm 72 and many other places in the Bible. The very same thing that the prophets were seen directed exclusively for God were going to be directed towards this one in the line of David. And that's why the genealogies in both Matthew and Luke were very pointed about Jesus being in the line of David. He was going to be receiving worship. And yet he got tired. Verse 7 says, And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. He got thirsty. I mean, that's just, that should, what? 
He left the cosmos, the creator of all things, and he's thirsty and tired. Why would he condescend into something like that? A form that was, well, tired and thirsty. And then John 19, and Jesus knowing that all things had been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, well, he said, I'm thirsty. Why did Jesus have to become a human? Why? Because we live in a blemished world that cannot reconnect with the creator of the cosmos. Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, the old Adam, the first Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We all have it. That seed that just pulls us in the wrong direction. The longing for self-preservation, for me before others, the longing to to have, to be served, to be top, to be not on the bottom. Jesus saying, no, the lowest are going to be the greatest, and the greatest will become the least. And I mean, it's just so confusing, Lord. How can I even process this thing that you're talking about, and you're calling it the gospel of the kingdom of God? There had to be an unblemished sacrifice. Deuteronomy 15. God had been saying, here's what the sacrifice is going to have to look like. If it has any defect, such as lameness or blindness or any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. I mean, God was never, Hebrews 8, God was never interested in the sacrificial blood of animals other than to point to one day the lamb's going to come. But he better be unblemished. Jesus was. How do we know? John 8, 29. Jesus said it. You want to talk about exclusive? He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Always? I mean, really? That sounds pretty exclusive. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. How can you say that? You're crazy. Or you're the one. He was the one. He subjected himself to human weakness. He got tired. He, he took on human flesh. He, got, he was thirsty. But wait a minute. Isaiah 40 verse 28 says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Could Jesus be God? Because God never becomes tired. Only in the form of the Davidic line, Jesus, who would become the unblemished lamb. He had to take on human flesh. Now, what's even more, more fascinating, and we'll close with this, is that third verse. I want to go back and read it to you again because I don't want it to slip by you. Verse 3, uh, Luke 8, verse 3, And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod Steward, so this Herod Antipas, the guy that was, it was the wife of the guy that was running Herod Antipas, who had killed John the Baptist. He was overseeing all of his stuff, you know, his financial interests and other things. And somehow it, the gospel had penetrated into the wife of the very steward of Herod Antipas. Amazing. And Susanna and many others, what were they doing? They were contributing to their support out of their own private means. Here's the point. God not only was willing to condescend in the form of his son and take on human flesh. The godness of Jesus comes 
the one that's enthroned, the one that everything was created through and by and for. And yet he was thirsty and tired. But not only that, he was poor. He didn't live at, he didn't live at the Vintage Club in Indian Wells. No way. I mean, he had really not anything. He even made himself dependent upon women. And I'm sorry to say this, but in that culture, in that time, you would have never admitted something like this. Uh, a woman who had been possessed by evil spirits and others were contributing out of their own personal means to the advancement of the proclamation and teaching about the kingdom of God. Jesus had made himself so subject to men that he was even dependent upon these women and a few others to support his three-and-a-half-year ministry. Can I just tell you, those were good dollars spent. Can you imagine? You think any of those women today are going, well, I wish we wouldn't, you know, that... We could have gone on an extra vacation or had an extra car or, you know, whatever. Not a car, but we could have an extra donkey, I guess. Uh, you know, we could have had an extra pair of sandals. We could have, I mean, you think, are you crazy? They were, of course, it was what a glorious thing they were able to do. But Jesus making himself dependent upon the contributions to even do his ministry is unfathomable to me. I cannot just just skip by that. I see that and I go, that's crazy. It's humbling. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, I, I don't, the guys don't have it here, but you just need to know, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, he owned everything, and yet for your sake, he became poor, that through his poverty, he might become rich. See, what God is teaching us here really is interdependence. You want to know one thing else about the kingdom? We're totally and completely dependent upon one another. I tell you it all the time. We, there's everything in my fallen nature that wants to become depend, independent. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough this. I don't have enough that. I don't want to be dependent on anybody. And if I can get to that place, then I'll be happy because I can do pretty much anything I want. If I don't have to be dependent on people who are going to fail me, then won't that be great? And as a result, people don't get married. People forget relationships. They just go from relationship to relationship to relationship. Anything but being dependent upon one another. And then Jesus comes along proclaiming and teaching the gospel of the kingdom. And he shows us through his condescension that this is very much about dependence. I'm going to give you all different gifts. I'm going to give you all different places and statuses in life. And I'm going to do, but you're going to be dependent upon me first and the spirit and my father who is in heaven, just as I have been completely and utterly dependent upon him. But you're also going to be dependent upon one another. Can I just say, I... You know, I for a long time, I, I made my own way. I did ministry for a long, long time without ever taking a dollar. I didn't want to. I just thought I, it's more freedom if I do it this way. And I'd, and I'd go, just like we talked about, I'd go watch backswings in Aspen. I was a director of instruction up there at a club, at the only private club there in Aspen for a bunch of years. I was at the Vintage in different places. And, and, I, and I was starting to kind of do some ministry. It was a hard decision. Can I just say it wasn't that easy to give over control. And now all of a sudden I'm dependent upon upon the church in some way or different people to support ministry and people have given to Laura and I just to just allow us to do it. We lived in a guest house for a long time. It's humbling. Who wants to do that? And then I look at Jesus. Jesus. Does that not blow your mind? 
the creator of all things, was dependent upon fallen creation for his own existence and ministry? Who are we worshiping? We're worshiping on one who, although he was rich, decided to become poor. Why? So that we could be rich. Now that's staggering. That blows my mind. It humbles me. And it also makes me want to follow him and worship him more than I ever have. And I hope it does you as well. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for our privilege, while we have it, to meet in the United States freely and openly, talking about the most important entity in the entire planet, and that is God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and your plans for us as the church. If you're watching this morning and you you say, well, I'm really not part of the church, and I've got a lot of questions, continue your journey, continue to investigate Jesus. I beg you to understand that Jesus and his exclusive claims were true, and he backed it up at every turn. Find anybody else on planet Earth, past, future, present, whatever, and I will tell you, you, they won't come close to checking the boxes. Jesus claimed exclusivity because he was the exclusive creator of all things. Lord, I thank you for this morning. If anybody wants to enter the kingdom, Lord, let them just know it is by faith. It is an act of your grace towards them. And then, Father, let us allow us to continue to meet so that we can learn and be discipled and learn more about what you said in great detail about teaching and the proclamation of this new way to be human called the kingdom of God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you have a fantastic week. I hope you are able to stay cool. I would cover your prayers. I'll be traveling next week. I'll be back in Denver. I've got some meetings. I'll be speaking at some of our folks, uh, Cherry Hills folks and others, on Tuesday. Covet those prayers. And uh, we've got some good stuff coming up. Look, let's just hang in there as a community. I know this has been a long path, but let's just hang in there as a community. Be, continue to be dependent upon one another in the very fashion that Jesus did. Have a great week.